uh, turn our attention to our teaching for this morning. We had a little trouble with our slides in the first service, and so uh, I'm, I'm just giving uh, Matt there an opportunity. Did we figure something out, Matt? Or? Oh, thank you. So let's start with uh, one of those typical sentence completion type exercises. In your mind, not out loud, complete the sentence. I really need to live more in the, not out loud, just what would you say in your mind? Some of you are saying, well, I know the answer. My kids, my parents, my co-workers, my friends all tell me, you got to live more in the moment. And the rest of us are saying, I know the answer do you expect. I need to live more in the moment. And so that's not the answer I'm going to give. Or we're saying, I'm not going to say anything because I know this is a trap. Right? Before we get to that, we're going to be talking about that. But let's just get a big picture on our teaching journey together this fall. Last Sunday, we began a six-Sunday teaching series about being all in. A great thing to think about as we go into a new ministry program year, Sid Coop, our Our youth ministry architect for this year introduced this series so well by reminding us that Jesus called us to be all in. And that all in is the only way that life really works and and the only way it's really satisfactory. But what does all in involve? How, How do I do all in? Well, we believe that all in, the way God wants us to live, is summarized well by living what we call our core values. And for the next five weeks, we're going to be fleshing out each one of these values one uh, Sunday at a time. Today, we're going to be talking about surrender to God's Word. Because God's Word claims to be from God. 2 Timothy 3, all Scripture is God-breathed. It's breathed out from God, not humans' words that are breathed into by God. It's actually literally breathed out from God, and it's useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correction, for training in righteousness. When I was a college student, I was grabbed by the words of the prophet Jeremiah, and I realized that what was happening to me was exactly what happened to the prophet Jeremiah when he says, your words came to me, and I drank them in, or literally, I ate them up. And they filled my heart with joy and happiness, because I belong to you, O Lord. Is that how you feel when you read When you hear God's word, you know, there's a lot of incomplete ways in in which we see or read the Bible, in in which we try to live in or live out the word of God. Some of us see the Bible as a, a rule book that was dropped out of heaven. Folks, if you see the Bible simply as a rule book, you are living an exhausting life, not a life giving life. Some of us see the Bible as a theology answer book. We go to it to prove some of our theological theories and we read into it what we want to see because this is what we believe. This is the system we've been created. Folks, that's a way to live sometimes becoming puffed up but not really alive. Some of us believe that the Bible is best described as a moral guidebook. Good principles to follow. We're going to try and live them out the best we can. Well, that may be a safe way to live, but that is not an empowering way to live. And that's not what we have, number one, 
in the Word of God. Jen Wilkin, in a book called Women of the Word, talks about some living in the Word shortcuts that we often take. Some of us, she says, take the Xanax approach. The Bible exists to make me feel better, and so we go for a pill a day. That's what we look for when we come to the Bible. Some of us, she says, take the pinball approach. We pick a passage and ask the Holy Spirit to speak to me. Or the personal shopper approach. Hmm, today I need to go to the store to get this. And we go after what we think we need from the Bible. Or many of us live by the way my son lived in our kitchen, in our, in our dining room, the picky eater approach. He used to we just knew that if we put anything green on his plate, broccoli, salad, wouldn't be touched. That's the way we treat the Bible. We, we like certain parts, and, and those become our go-to places. This morning, we're going to see something way more powerful than living by rules, than following moral guidelines, than picking out some pet lines to live by, or becoming theological wise guys. We're going to ask five questions. Number one, let's start at the beginning What is this book? What is it really? To figure that out, I'm going to invite you to to, to zero-base your thinking, to go back to zero for just a moment and try to suspend some of, of your preconceptions or some of your conclusions that you've come to about this book that we call God's Word, to remove the filters or lenses through which we look at this book when we do read it, now, that will probably a little bit, be a little bit more difficult for those of us who have been living in this book for a long time than for those of us who are a little less familiar, but, but let's try it, okay? You're there? Are you there in your mind? Now, if you have a Bible in front of you, or if you have your Bible app, go to the very first sentence. Let's start at the beginning. Sometimes, just opening a book and looking at the first three lines can tell you what kind of book it is. How does this book present itself? Well, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you came to this book for the first time, what, what, book, what kind of book do you think this would be? Wouldn't you think it's a story? Really? A story? Well, let's see how the book ends. Go to the last page. Revelation chapter 22. And close to the beginning of one of the last sections, we read this. And they, the servants of God in the new creation, they will reign forever and ever. It begins like a story. It ends like a story. Could it be that this book is a story? Although we won't go into detail if you're analyzing this book that we call the Bible, this anthology of books that we call the Bible, just the way it starts and the way that it ends and everything in between, what you have is a slide that won't click. (laughs) What you have is what we would call an epic narrative, an epic story. Not just a story, but a story that claims to be the story. Some of the most enduring of all literature are epic narratives or poems. Homer's Iliad, Odyssey. If you're from the Nordic countries, countries, Beowulf, right? Fantasy, Tolkien, Lord of the Rings, 
Harry Potter. All of them complex tales with multiple volumes, complex stories written or uh, covering periods of time with one central hero. And so according to this epic narrative that we have in our hands called the Bible, there comes a point in history, not in myth, not in fantasy, that a guy by the name of Jesus comes onto the scene as a human and he stands up and he says, the time has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's me. Repent, straighten out how you've been thinking and seeing everything and believe the good news. And in close to the beginning of of the great summary of his teaching that we have in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, I haven't come to do away with the early part of the story, which he summarizes as the law and the prophets. I am the fulfillment to which everything has been pointing. Me, I am the hero of the story. So who says that kind of stuff, right? Well, as many of us know, having read C.S. Lewis, it There's only three options. Either he's a liar on the level of the devil himself or he's a lunatic, literally, or he's the real thing. None of the stuff of being a nice guy worth emulating or a good teacher worth considering. After he died, and then what? The people who latched onto him were gravely disappointed by his death and the way the story ended, he appears to them and says, hey, can't you see it? It had to happen. Everything in the story has been pointing to me who I am and what I have done for you that you really need to draw you into this story. The Apostle Paul, as he leaves this group of churches in in the gateway area of Ephesus, the gateway into the new world, He says to them, I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole counsel of God. Now, when we hear that word counsel, some of us might think of advice. Solid advice, probably. Maybe advice like our parents or boss give us. You know, I would strongly advise you, like, do I really have a choice? (laughs) Right? But that word counsel is actually the word that is normally translated will. Will. What's a will? A will is a clear, written, legal document as to what a person with authority is commissioned to make happen in history. Paul makes sure these people understand the entirety of God's story, and that's what he had come to terms with that changed his life, and we're going to see that in a moment. I wish I had time to walk through that great One of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible, that great, most epicest point in the book of Revelation, that scene in Revelation chapter 5 with the scroll, where the entire story has come crashing down. And John almost has to believe that there is no grand plan because no one is found worthy to open the scrolls, the will of God. No one has the right or the power to execute the plan. And John almost has to believe it's all been a bad dream until on the throne he sees a lamb that was slain 
who takes the scrolls and opens the seal. And that great worship scene, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive honor and glory and power. He is worthy. He has the right and the power to pull the plan off. Yes, God's word contains some rules to obey, just like we need rules for driving on the highways to make it safe and successful for everyone. Yes, there are many principles for living we find in the Bible, and yes, there are some promises to claim, but what is most significant is that it is the book that helps us to understand the story we are really living in, the story as it was meant to be, the story about why it so often feels like it's not what it was meant to be, and the story as to how it will one day be what it was created to be, because there is one worthy to pull it all off. So it's not all story, but everything in the Bible is related to story. Let's just take a, just a brief survey as to, as to how the Bible is composed. 43% of the Bible is, is, is story, literal story, which is the most common form of human literary expression. We're going to see a little bit later. The second most common literary form in the Bible is what? It's poetry. What's poetry? Poetry is, is creative expression helping us to express and come to terms with the story. That's why music is so powerful. And only 24% is discourse, which is people talking and giving lectures. About what? About how to understand and live in the story. So, if God's word is, above all, a story, the story, what does that tell us about what surrendering to God's word is really all about? It's not just about obeying a set of laws and principles. It is simply surrendering into the story. Into the story that is happening and the story that will happen. At the heart of it all, it's not satisfying. It won't work just to surrender to rules and submit to principles and accept policies because we will always see ways it's not working for me when I do that. You see, ultimately, it's not just about surrendering to. It's about surrendering into. Paul, well, Saul, as he was originally called, wanted to live all in. He tried to live all in. He tried to live in the word as he understood it without surrendering into the story God was creating. That was the story of Paul's life. It led him to persecute those who who did get it. And on his way to do more damage to followers of Jesus, Jesus himself, the risen Jesus appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus to persecute more Christians. And he said, Saul, Saul, why are you working against me? Against the wave that you say you believe God is building. It is so hard for you to kick against the goads. Goads, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, were were heavy, sharp sticks that farmers used with oxen that were yoked, plowing a field. And if they started to veer off course and they didn't respond to a tug on the reins, the farmer would take a sharp stick and jab it into the oxen's side. Can you believe Jesus used such cruelty to animals' terminology? Whew, what a guy. But what Jesus is saying is that when you don't surrender yourself into the story God's building, at some point it's going to be way more painful 
way more painful than if you just go with it. I had an all-in experience years ago, a few years ago, that helped me understand how powerful this insight is. For our 25th wedding anniversary, LaDonna and I were given the opportunity to, of a two-week trip to Mexico, to the, to the southern tip of the Baja Peninsula. We stayed in this neat little condo, partly, or between the, the, the party town of Cabo San Lucas and closer to the more sleepy traditional town of San Jose del Cabo. It was an awesome time. In a condo just, just down from us, after we'd been there a couple of days, these three businessmen, uh, two from L.A., one from Portland, all friends uh, for years since college days, they, uh, they were surfer guys who came down at least once a month. They would, on Wednesdays, they'd, go, they'd, uh, they'd log in together uh, to a, a, a surf map of the entire west coast of uh, North America and South America, and they find out where the break was going to be best on the West Coast in the coming weekend. And so they'd find out where it was going to be best, and then they would uh, book their flights, and Friday night after work, they would fly down to that place, and, and this day they ended up in the Baja, uh, which has a, vi- a wide variety of surf breaks, and, and they, would, they would, when they got there, they would log in again, and they would find out exactly what time the good surf would be coming in the morning, at what beach, and uh, so this first morning that we saw them, we were sitting around 7 o'clock outside our, uh, our condo on, the, on this deck, on the ground floor deck, and just watching the water in front of us, and out walked these guys like they were carrying briefcases, but it was their surfboards, and, uh, and we started talking to them, they, they told us their story, and, and then they came back a couple hours later, and we're still on the deck reading and drinking more coffee, and, and we started engaging them, and, and uh, after the second day of this, I said, I have to try that. I've got to try that. I want to be all in. And by that time, I had figured out that there's only one way to surf. You've you got to go all in. Uh, you can't go halfway and just sit there, or else you're going to be just sitting there. And I could see this would be similar to rappelling, which I'd tried many years ago, where you can't just sort of lean out of the, over the edge. I realized it would be sort of like my first trip down a black diamond ski run. Just sliding down sideways would not be fulfilling. I had to commit and lean all in. And trust my skills, I I could already begin to feel the adrenaline. And yes, this will be another downhill biking story, sort of. (laughs) So I booked a lesson for Friday morning at at 10 o'clock. I I showed up at the shop and met 18-year-old blonde-haired California boy, Nathan, who was living in the Baja because he was aiming to be a professional surfer. It was a blazing hot, sunny day. I had this wonderful one-hour lesson with Nathan. Wonderful, because about 30 minutes in, I actually stood up and rode my first wave. About a three to four foot gentle, but gently powerful wave. I rode it all the way in, standing up. And the first thing I did was look to see if my wife was watching. She was sitting on the beach reading alongside all of these young babes who were hanging out with or, or wanted to hang out with the real surfers. I did it. I was so proud of myself. After about an hour and ten minutes, Ethan said, you're ready, man. Go do it. You can use the board for a while at no additional charge. Just leave it on the rack on the beach when you're done. I'm going to go have a few rides by myself and, and then I'll pick it up. I knew he was going to say that because for the last ten minutes he'd been eyeing his watch and the other surfers and the babes on the beach. And teaching some old dude definitely did not get the attention of the babes on the beach. And so I was on my own. And and after about 15 minutes of that, I 
just couldn't seem to stay on the board anymore. I thought I was getting it, but I, but I couldn't stand. And I didn't really think I was tired, but maybe I was. And I tried one more wave and couldn't stand up. And so I laid down on the board and just sort of paddled my way and getting more tired all the time. Did I mention it was a hot, sunny day? I paddled until the surfboard hit the sand because I was too exhausted to carry it. I rolled off the surfboard, tried to stand up, and finally got up and fell right back down. And then it happened. On my knees, about 30 feet from my wife, sitting there with all those babes, all in, became all out. (laughs) I lost it all, everything. My wife looked at the babes and mirrored their look at this stupid middle-aged guy with a hangover look. (laughs) And she waited until she felt sufficient time had gone by. And in a very circuitous route, she came back, she came to where I had dragged the surfboard and took me home to sleep it off. (laughs) But what I experienced that day was something way more significant than that I should have been wearing something on my bald head to protect me from the sun and probably should have taken some gravel because I get motion sickness from waves. What I felt in that experience was perhaps the most core all-in lesson that we need to learn. You see, at the heart of surfing is a wave, a powerful wave, a reality that anybody who wants to surf has to come to terms with. You know, we talk a lot today about leaning in. It's a great metaphor. But seeing a surfer on the wave tells me what leaning in is all about. You see, a surfer does not create the wave. A surfer will not change the wave. He has to come to terms with. She has to abandon herself into the reality of the wave that is and learn to ride it with all-in abandonment. Now let's go back to that sentence completion we started with, what is it that I really need to learn to do? I really need to learn to live in the story. Or if we want to put a moment in there, I need to learn to live in the moment by living in the story. What happens when I don't surrender to the story that God is creating? Well, two things. Number one, life becomes harder than, we need, than it needs to be. Really. That's what Jesus was telling Paul about the goads. Life becomes harder than it needs to be if I'm fighting the wave that God's creating. I'm not going to change the wave. I can't create the wave. Not just the little realities in my life, but the big story God is writing. And part of that is because of who the hero is in this story, you got to come to terms with Jesus. If you're at that point of of trying to figure out what it means to come to terms with Jesus, Alpha is the place you need to be. We're going to start in a couple weeks. You can talk to somebody in the foyer afterwards about signing up. That's what it's all about, learning to come to terms with Jesus in the story. There's a second thing that happens, though, when we don't surrender into the story God's writing. We will end up living for and living in a lesser story than the one we were created for. This past week was the anniversary of 9-11, the 17th anniversary of the destruction of the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center in New York. 
And in the ever-heightening competition of the news media outlets to come up with some new news bite to capture our attention, one of the pieces I was drawn to was about the memorial that has been established on the site of what was the Twin Towers. It's, it's called a tribute in light. These Twin Towers of light, 88 powerful spotlights whose beams reach six kilometers in the sky and can be seen from 100 kilometers away. This memorial is lit from dusk to dawn. Well, it used to be. But when it was, it created a problem. You see, these powerful beams of light, well, powerful by the standards of what humans can create, these beams of life, light have messed with the migratory patterns of songbirds. Songbirds that have a built-in navigation system, and by what science can determine at this point is probably a navigation system tied to the stars, to find their way to the destiny to which they belong. It's a long, exhausting journey. And what research has surfaced is when the lights of this memorial are not on, there are typically about 500 songbirds within half a kilometer of that memorial. But when the lights are turned on, within 20 minutes, that number shoots up to about 16,000 songbirds that stay around that memorial. And one of the scientists said there's, this, there's almost this magnetic pull of birds to these lights. But these lights are not the only example of what has been known for a long time because birds migrate mostly at night with the help of the stars. They're attracted to any artificial light, street lights, high-rise tower lights. It's the second leading cause of death of birds in North America next to cats. And folks, that's the reason why we need to live in the Word of God. To make sure the true story for which we were created is the one that we can continually see and be drawn to and give ourselves to surrendering into. Jeremiah switches the metaphor from light, but he, he puts it this way. God speaking to his people who know the story. He says, my people have committed two sons. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns. Broken cisterns that cannot even hold water. They have lived by their own rules and their own stories. You see, we all live in some story. We do. We, we were created for story. Jonathan Gottskall, who's, who's a, an, an evolutionary writer, he talks, he has this wonderful book about humans called The Storytelling Animals. And he says, we as a species are addicted to story. Story is central to the human condition. He tries to, he tries to explain why, and it's like, Really? He goes on to say the human life is so bound up in stories that we are thoroughly desensitized to their weird and witchy power. What's the number one category of books that sell? Stories. More juvenile and adult fiction is sold each year than all categories of nonfiction combined. It's got to the point, he says, that even some of fiction's competitors... Read like fiction in drag. You've you got, you got to do the science like a story. 
It's not just books, it's movies, music, night dreams, daydreams. Did you know, and there's been some creative research done on this, that the average person has about 2,000 daydreams in their waking hours per day, at 14 seconds per daydream. In other words, half of our waking hours, we're spinning stories to ourselves, mostly stories about how it could be better if somebody wasn't against me or God was making things go my way. Did you realize that the, the, the number one category of people who have been attracted to NFL football in the last couple of years on TV are women? You know why? Because they've got these color commentaries, commentaries, many of whom are paid more than the head coach of the team, spinning stories about every little person and every little thing and telling the game like a story. We all tell, we live in stories, most of, most of which we make up, most of which are centered around ourselves. I love the way George Guthrie, who's just recently become a professor at Regent College in Vancouver, puts it. I'm going to personalize it and say me. He talks about we. I live in constant danger of either seeing the story of my life as too big in a wrong kind of way and, conversely, seeing the Bible story as too small or of seeing the story of my life as too small in every way and not related to God's grand story. That's my condition. And that is why it is so important to live, to live in the story regularly, daily, weekly, because in order to keep ourselves from surrendering to lesser stories, we need to immerse ourselves in the story, the only story that is going to end well. So what is the lesser story? The lesser identity, perhaps, that you have become wrapped up in as you head in this year. What's the one you're in danger of falling into as you go into this year? At work, have your goals become your God? At school, have all the things that you think are against you dominating your thinking? In your marriage, have you made it all about you and what you need? What's the lesser story that you're in danger of being trapped into? Two more questions really quickly. Number one, how do I know? How can I figure out if this is the real story? Well, there's, there's a number of ways. There's, there, there's sort of more objective kinds of, uh, of proofs, and some of which are talked about at the Alpha Course to introduce you to some of it. But bottom line that many people have discovered is that is this story, the story of the Word of God that makes the most sense of reality and of my reality. This is the story that tells me there is a God. There is a God who is really, well, God. Not some random figment of my imagination that I can manipulate with rituals. There is someone on the throne of the universe that is in charge and to whom everyone will have to be accounted. Justice will be done and love will win. This is the story that validates that I know, what I know in my heart, that I was created for something more, something better, something bigger. I was created to be God's image, God's, literally God's icon, to relate to him, to reflect him, to represent him above all creation. 
This is the story that recognize that I tend to live below that, to recognize my tendency to make myself the center and not God, to want to have my way rather than God's way. That, that is me. I so don't want to submit to anyone to surrender to anything. This is the story that tells me of a God whose love is as great as his sovereignty and his power and who surrendered himself into our story, who submitted himself to my unsubmission to him to the point of allowing humanity to kill him so that he could pay the price of death that I deserve and because he was greater than death could defeat it for my sake, take all of my failure, all of my unsurrender on his shoulders and make a way for me to be written back into his story This is the story that gives me a hope that is robust, that has substance, that this same God will one day wrap it up and give me the status and completeness I know I was created for but don't deserve. Let me just summarize this by talking about two people who have found in this story the real story and why it was they surrendered into it. The first one is a man that I met a number of years ago, brilliant man, an astrophysicist by the name of Hugh Ross. And here's his words about how he came to surrender to the story. Hugh Ross grew up in Vancouver. And he says, astronomy fascinates me. It always has. I started studying it at age seven. When I visited the library to find out why stars were hot. Once I found the answer to that question, I continued reading every physics and astronomy book I could get my hands on. With my dad's help and the money I saved from collecting pop bottles, I built my first telescope at age 16. That's the year I turned my attention to cosmology, the origin and structure of the universe. I saw that the Big Bang was emerging as the most plausible explanation for the history of the universe. And because the Big Bang applies a cosmic beginning, it also implies a beginner. It's just logical. A, cos- or a causal agent outside or beyond the universe. And so I became convinced that belief in God was reasonable. But the immensity of the cosmos made me doubt that a creator of such awesome magnitude had communicated in words to mere humans on this tiny speck called earth. It occurred to me, he says, that that if this being had communicated through language, the message would be clear and consistent and inviting as the universe itself. My curiosity about this cosmic beginner was now engaged and armed with knowledge from studies in science and history, I began to investigate the world's so-called holy books. I, I reasoned that if men invent a religion, its teachings would reflect human perspectives and, of course, human error. But if that writing were free of such limitations and errors, it must have come from a supernatural source. At age 17, while beginning to serve as director of observations for Vancouver's Royal Astronomical Society, I also began a very private study of the world's sacred tests, texts, testing them for accuracy. My non-religious upbringing freed me from emotional attachment to any particular book or set of beliefs. And so I started with the book revered by my neighbors, Eastern Religious Texts, and worked my way westward. One by one, each book fell, failed the factuality test, and I gained confidence that my initial skepticism had been affirmed. Until I picked up the Bible. From page one, this book proved an exception. Not only did it provide hundreds of statements that could be tested for accuracy, it also anticipated thousands of years in advance many facts of socio-political history and of nature that science and history would one day confirm. 
For example, it anticipated the history and current tensions in the Middle East. It also described the four fundamental features of Big Bang cosmology. Number one, the beginning of a space and time coincident with cosmology, or with the beginning of matter and energy. Number two, continual expansion of the universe from a cosmic beginning. Number three, the constancy of physical laws. And number four, the pervasiveness of entropy or, or, or decay. Through nearly two years of study, this book's predictive power persuaded me that it must have been inspired by one who knows and guides the past, present, and future. I had essentially proven to myself that the Bible is more reliable than the laws of physics I focused on in my university courses. The only reasonable conclusion I could see was that the Bible must be the inspired word of God. However, I delayed making a personal commitment of my life to Jesus Although I knew God with my mind, I struggled to surrender my will to Him. What if God changed the direction my life was going? What if the people around me found out about my new beliefs? As I continued to wrestle with the decision, He had a kicking against the goads experience. My grades began to drop. I discovered the meaning of Romans 1.21, which warns that rejecting God's truths result in a darkening of your mind. After two months of vacillation, I finally turned my whole self to God and signed the decision statement at the back of my now well-worn new Bible, acknowledging my life now belonged to Jesus Christ, my Creator and my Savior. I could... Don't have time to tell you much about the story of Emil Kaye, who was a philosophy professor for many years at the University of Pennsylvania, who was, came from France, a French intellectual who'd been raised without any knowledge of the Bible or Christianity, and in a World War II foxhole, he determined that he would give his life to working against religion, especially Christianity. When he married, he told his young wife that in their home there would be no faith, no religious literature whatsoever. But as a philosopher, one of the driving forces of his life was to try to discover a book that truly understood understood him. Him, with all of his complexities. He decided he never discovered that book, and, and, and so he decided he would write that book. He began an anthology of writings that would, he says, lead me, as it were, from fear and anguish through a variety of intervening stages to supreme utterance of release and jubilation. He's going to write his own personal scripture. Listen to what happened. The day came when I put the finishing touches to the book that would understand me, speak to my condition, and help me through life's happenings. A beautiful sunny day it was. I went out, sat under a tree, and opened my precious anthology. As I went on reading, however, a growing disappointment came over me. Instead of speaking to my condition, the various passages reminded me of their context, of the circumstances in which I wrote them. It was then that I knew that the whole undertaking would not work simply because it was of my own making. It carried no strength of persuasion. In a dejected mood, I put the little book back in my pocket. Now, it just so happened that at that very time, Kaye reached this conclusion. His wife came into the possession of a French Bible. She brought it home. She knew her husband's antagonistic bent toward the Bible, and so she reluctantly explained how it was she received it, wondering how he'd respond. Here's his words. But I was no longer listening. A Bible, you say? 
Where is it? Show me. I've never seen one before. And then he goes on to say this. I literally grabbed the book, rushed to my study. I opened it, chanced on the Beatitudes of Jesus. I read and read and read. Now aloud with indescribable warmth surging within, I could not find words to express my awe and wonder. And suddenly the realization dawned upon me. This was the book that understood me. I needed it so much, yet unaware I had attempted to write my own in vain. I continued to read deeply into the night, mostly from the Gospels, and lo and behold, as I looked through them, the one of whom they spoke, the one who spoke and acted in them, became alive to me. That's the power of the real story. Do you know it? How will it look like when I'm surrendered to the story? Well, number one, these are just two of them that out of many. Number one, I will want to and be able to leverage everything in my life, good or bad, for the sake of the story. As a young couple, LaDonna and I had typical dreams for ourselves and the family that we would have until those dreams were shattered by the news that we would never be able to have children. At that same time, we were in graduate school in a community of young couples that were popping them out, well, like popcorn, actually. In a one-month period, just prior to Christmas, that most happy time of the year, 30 days in a row, we either received news that another friend was having a baby, that another friend had just had a baby, or another baby shower to which LaDonna would be invited or felt she had to attend. Our story was not happening as we had dreamed and planned and every single day an in-your-face reminder. As we struggled and processed that together over the course of months, we made a commitment to God that we would use whatever story he gave us as leverage for his story. As we prayed together what we could do, Over the course of several years, two commitments came out of that. That over time, commitments that made life much more difficult at times, but which time is revealing that God is truly using our story for his story. Is there anything today in your story that you've been fighting, that you've been mad about, that you've been disappointed in and it stalled you, that you need to surrender to God's story and begin to use it and look for ways in which you can leverage your story for the big story God is writing. One more sign. As Jesus said, that when we allow him to take the brokenness, pain, and failures of our story which make us weary and come to him, surrender to him, we will be able to live in a condition in our story of rest. Not anxiety, not intensity, rest. Or as Paul says in Philippians 4, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That only happens as we say, okay, I'm all in. Surrendering everything into the story, living according to the story, trusting in and entrusting myself into the big story that God is writing. So as the worship team comes up, 
and leads us in a final song. Can you ask yourself the question, what stage am I in in my, in my story with God and, and in God's story? We, 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 there's, there's sort of four stages that we tend to be in and we vacillate. We go back and forth through these, sto- these stages. The, the one stage is, you know, I don't need God in my story. We may say we do, but we're not living as if we do by entrusting ourselves all in. There comes a point in time many times and different times where we say, you know what, I recognize that I really do need God in my story. And we try and figure out how to do that and we come to a point of saying, you know what, it's not just that I need God in my story, I need God to write my story. But that's not all in. The all in comes to that aha point when we realize, you know what, what I really need is I need God. I need, a, I need to allow God to write his story in and through me. Is my life based on the true story? Like based, not just working from it, but working on it, in it. That's what you need to ask yourself every single day. Would you pray with me the words of a a wonderful new worship song that LaDonna and I have begun to listen to. Just close your head. Close your... Okay. Close your eyes. Bow your head. Let's pray. Lord, here I am. All my intentions, all my obsessions, I want to lay them all down into your hands. Only your love is vital Though I'm not entitled, still you delight in calling me your child. God, you don't need me, but somehow you want me. Oh, how you love me. Somehow that frees me to take my hands off of my life and the way it should go. Somehow that frees me to open my hands and give up control. I've had plans shattered and broken. Things I have hoped in fall through my hands. You have plans to redeem and restore me. You're behind and before me. Oh, help me believe. God, you don't need me. But somehow you want me. Oh, how you love me. And somehow that frees me to take my hands off of my life and the way it should go. Somehow that frees me to open my hands and give you control. Because in the name of Jesus, it can be so. May it be so with each one of us here today. And God's people said, amen. Let's stand together and sing our way out with that great old song, that tradition song. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Jesus.